Hello, some quick plugs before we get started. You can follow the show on Twitter at GFAllentownPod. Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. The artist formerly known as iTunes, five-star reviews are always appreciated. You can email the show at greetingsfromallentown at gmail.com. The show is now on Facebook. Search me out. Find me, GF Allentown. And you can read my blog with many musings on wrestling and life at section309.com. And now... Hit it. The following wrestling exhibition requires discretionary viewer participation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 15 of Greetings from Allentown. I am your host, Peter Winson, and today I'm going back to 1989 for episode of WWF Superstars. I cannot believe that I have not done an episode of Superstars during the Brother Love era, which coincides with my main childhood nexus, as it were, of watching WWF on a weekly basis, religiously, from 88 through 91 there. So this is the first time. This, of course, isn't exactly the greatest brother love segment on this show, as he welcomes the Doctor of Style, Slick. There's a lot else going on in the WWF during the time period here in early June. If you recall, there was a little movie in June of 89 that came out called No Holds Barred, and that premiered the day before this aired on June 2nd. And, of course, it starred Hulk Hogan and Vince McMahon and Hulk famously rewrote the movie or some sort of business the night before, and that is what we got, for better or for worse. Mainly, I guess, for worse if you're a serious film buff, but if you're going to look at that movie from a comedic perspective, there's few movies that are unintentionally more funny then then No Holds Barred and they were promoting the hell out of No Holds Barred all on all the TV all through June of 1989 starting with a clip that'll be airing on this show which I'm sure I'll have some fun with when we get there on prime time the following Monday on June 5th and that is also a Richard Land video up on YouTube I watched the whole thing the other day where Gorilla and Bobby are doing prime time outside a quote-unquote movie theater, and a lot of wrestlers happen to be walking past them, going in and out in the th- of the theater for snacks, such as the Bushwhackers, and there's all sorts of wacky shenanigans with Gorilla and Bobby. It's uh, one, one of the better on-location, quote-unquote, primetime wrestling episodes, which they did a lot of in 1988, in 89 i think bruce pritchard had mentioned on his podcast that he did devoted to the topic of primetime wrestling that i guess the producer nelson swegler really liked to go on location for whatever reason so they would go to places like old tucson arizona and they had the one where they were out on the boat for some reason they got this one in the movie theater obviously promoting no holds bar they did the ones in the casino surrounding wrestlemania 4 and wrestlemania 5 now wwf in 1989 is more than just the weird promotions for 
no holds barred that would literally run through the end of the year. They held a no holds barred the match the movie in late December 1989, and of course I got that on pay per view because you know what else was I going to do? 1989 WWF, the only year of any promotion where I got every single pay per view for the entire year. So I guess that's mildly notable there. But WWF 89, there's a certain goofiness there. It's definitely not the NWA 1989, which was well known for just great matches time and time again. Flair and Steamboat, Flair and Funk, other stuff further down the card. Lex Luger in his heel run just doing some outstanding work. But on the WWF side of the ledger, there's a certain goofiness, but with a charm. And what I say when I say charm, I'm kind of referring to two guys. I'm referring to Jesse the Body Ventura, who of course is on color here with Vince McMahon for this episode of Superstars. And Jesse in 1989, it would be his last full year in the broadcast booth in the WWF. And in 89, he was really at the top of his game. WrestleMania 5 is likely the finest Jesse performance just from a humor perspective. He was really, really cranky for a good part of it, especially after Hogan defeated Savage at the end of the show, but he was also elated when Rick Rude stole the Intercontinental title from the Ultimate Warrior. So you got a full range of emotions, Jesse, there. And his pairing with Vince, I've grown to like more and more over time, not for their match-calling abilities, because Vince, as you got later in the 1980s, was more about the showiness and the glitziness and less about calling actual things in the ring. Vince was very good at kind of moving the story along because, of course, it is his promotion, so he should be able to do that well. And Jesse, as an analyst, was always very strong, coming from the former wrestler perspective, But the adult in me just loves how Jesse can turn anything and just make it hilarious. And his banter on this show with Vince McMahon is just unbelievable. It's it's an all-time Vince and Jesse banter show. And I'm not going to quote myself in the YouTube comment theater coming up later. Uh, but I did comment that this was this is an all-timer for Jesse and Vince. Jesse, of course, the show is in Duluth, Minnesota. They're obviously not live and in the arena. They're doing the whole green screen bit. So, but it would have been nice, you know, if Jesse was there live. You know, quick drive up the road to Duluth. Not sure how far it is from wherever he lived in Minnesota at the time, but I'm sure he could have done that in a day's drive. So Ventura is one side of it, and of course on Challenge, you had Bobby the Brain Heenan. Although he was actually taken off challenge for a while in 1989 and replaced by Tony Schiavone. And that's because Bobby the Brain was just a very busy, busy man in 1989. A real man about town. Up to the point in 1989 when the Ultimate Warrior did lose the Intercontinental title to Rick Rude. Which, by the way, of course, Bobby's help there with holding down the leg after the suplex into the ring was very instrumental in helping Rude win that. No member of the Heenan family had ever won a championship and of course the brain would be chided by Monsoon and others that he had failed to bring gold into the family 
and it took a good four and a half years from his arrival to have Rude. And then shortly after this show aired in 1989, the Brainbusters would end Demolition's streak as WWF Tag Team Champions, the longest streak to that point, and a record that would stand for nearly 30 years until broken by the New Day recently. The other thing about WWF in 1989, it kind of felt a little bit refreshing because you had guys coming in to kind of give a new feel to the product. There were a lot of NWA guys, almost kind of like refugees from Jim Crockett Promotions as that ship went under and was salvaged by Ted Turner in late 1988. You had a lot of those guys walking in the door. You had Dusty Rhodes unthinkable to see him in the WWF, but here he is. He's on this show. We get the first Dusty vignette where Dusty is doing all the crazy occupational stuff, delivering pizza, pumping gas into cars, uh, trash, uh, of course, plumbing as well. Uh, Dusty had all of those mid-90s jobber gimmicks like T.L. Hopper and Duke the Dumpster Drossy. He was all of that put together in one in 1989. There was, of course, Tony Schiavone, who I just mentioned, took on a role on Wrestling Challenge. He was also appearing on Primetime, doing these Coliseum-exclusive deals within the episodes where they kind of preview something that was going to be on an upcoming Coliseum release. You had Rugged Ronnie Garvin from the NWA, and he kind of gave it a different feel in that he didn't really have much of a gimmick, per se. He was just sort of kind of what he was in the NWA, but kind of toned down. He wasn't as high on the card. Of course, he was a world champion in 1987, feuding with Ric Flair. You wouldn't see any of that here, but he did have the memorable feud with Greg Valentine, which felt like something out of the NWA, transported into the World Wrestling Federation. And then, of course, there was Telly Blanchard and Arn Anderson, the Brain Busters, who came in in the fall of 1988 and actually did not last the full year in 1989 despite the fact that they did get a brief tag title run, as I mentioned earlier, and seeing them in a WWF ring was just really, really weird for longtime wrestling fans because those guys had never been there before. They didn't seem like the kind of guys who were a real fit for that WWF. They were not circusy or cartoony in any way. They were just two badasses kind of kicking butt as a tag team of equals. So it was interesting to see them there. They got the little title run, and then they headed back to the NWA, or at least one of them did. Tully, of course, famously ran into some issues along the way. Uh, I also want to mention the original concept. I think I may have referenced this on a previous show. One of my original concepts for Greetings from Allentown, or what became this show, was to do a show where I would only do wrestling from 1989. And it seemed like a good idea as I was thinking about it, because there's a lot of NWA slash WCW out there, and it's such a good year there. There's all the WWF that's out there. There's now primetime wrestling being added to the network. They only got up to about late July or so. Uh, there's, you know, still some territories out there. You had world class with the whole Eric Embry angle in the USWA and all that. 
I believe Continental was still hanging around in 1989. Uh, Pacific Northwest was still there. So there would have been a lot. But I would have gotten sick of just doing one particular year. So I'm glad that I'm able to cover a wide range of things, you know, dating from the Bruno and Larry feud of 1980. And I got some positive feedback for that episode. Of course, that's very much appreciated. Reaching out on Twitter, Facebook, wherever. Uh, I enjoy hearing the positive feedback from those who are listening to the show. And doing shows all the way up to the late 90s, I've been taking a peek at some of the 1998-99 Sunday Night Heat shows as kind of a, you know, I'd like to do a Sunday Night Heat episode at some point. I've done Maple Leaf Wrestling. I've done Superstars. I've done a Challenge. Action Zone. I'd kind of like to do one of every show at some point going forward, you know, within the next couple of months. Uh, You know, it might not be entirely realistic, but I did see one Sunday Night Heat episode, which was the one taped in Worcester, Mass., same as the Shotgun Saturday Night from a couple episodes ago, where uh, it's the same show as Mick Foley winning the world title from The Rock. And I was there on that occasion, so that would be one where I could add some first-hand experience of being there, except for the fact that I remember very little about it, because you got Vince Russo booking, and how the hell are you going to remember anything that he was involved in? (laughs) Yeah, I know. But anyway, without any further ado, you should probably just get right into the show. i got to warn you right now that it's going to be very heavy on the Vince and Jesse banter, as I alluded to. This is a very breezy watch, so let's get moving, shall we? No, it's not CM Punk, but it is Brutus the Barber Beefcake, and I don't know what those guys have in common other than the fact that, well, I know Beefcake's been to Chicago because I was actually on the same flight with him to Chicago in October of 2011. I'm sitting in Terminal C at Logan Airport in Boston, and I'm I'm flying out with a friend of mine. We're going to see the Bruins play the Blackhawks in Chicago, and sure enough, Ed Leslie is there, and he's kind of wandering around, and I'm wondering, why do I keep running into this guy? And I should probably save my Brutus Beefcake stories for, because he'll he'll show up again at some point. But uh, yeah, I would run into this guy from time to time. I've never had a conversation with the man, which is weird because in 1989, he was my favorite non-Hogan wrestler. And I just love the whole look and everything with like the weird pants and all that. I like I said, I was a I was a weird I was a weird dumb kid. So I like oh he's got like the mesh whatever on the side, you know. Oh he cut up his pants. I was like, oh I like how he humiliates his opponents by cutting his hair. Which of course during this match with Tom Stone is a real bugaboo for Jesse. Brutus Beefcake versus Tom Stone just kind of a 
odd pairing there. It's two guys who appeared in AWA Super Sunday in 1983. Of course, Tom Stone was in the opening match on that card as Rocky Stone against Brad Rankins, and Beefcake was still known as Ed Boulder at that point, and he faced Wahoo McDaniel. Both guys lost their matches on that night, and you probably knew that Rocky Stone was going to lose to Brad Rangans. Ed Boulder, not exactly a great worker at that point. And by 89, he had developed into an okay worker, in my opinion. But he's a classic example of it's not how great you are or whatever. Sometimes it is just who you know in the business. And he gets a lot of grief for that. And I don't understand why, because if I was a wrestler and I could have latched myself to Hulk Hogan in 1983, I would have looked to maybe do that, especially if I wasn't particularly good at any of the aspects of the business like Ed Leslie was. I mean, I guess he had a de- decent look. He had a you know good body or whatever. I don't want to get into whole, all that business. But he comes into the WWF 1984 as Brutus Beefcake, kind of weird stripper guy. There was a vignette on Championship Wrestling that showed him in a club that almost looked like a stripper club or whatever. And he was just kind of a male stripper type in his early days. And it kind of settled in a little bit when he was in the Dream Team with Greg Valentine, and of course that was formed mainly to transition Valentine out of singles after he'd lost the Intercontinental title back to Tito Santana, and Valentine was of course carrying that team for much of the time. You had the tag title reign ending at WrestleMania two. Beefcake, you know, he got a little bit better as time went along, had the face turn at WrestleMania three, becomes the barber, shaves Adrian Adonis's hair, and at this point in 1989, he's he's pretty popular. He's more popular than people seem to remember. I always hear Conrad Thompson on the Pritchard podcast. He always referred to him as Brutus the Bleeping Barber, just kind of derisively. And I don't quite understand that because it's not like the guy didn't get cheered at the time. I mean, he was pretty wildly popular, and I can attest to that. Like I said... I was a huge fan, and I was really PO'd when the Macho Man cut his hair on the Brother Love Show. Now, of course, it was a comeuppance for all the haircuts he had doled out, and Jesse just gleefully pointed it out as it happened. Because before that, Jesse on commentary was just waiting for a moment where the tables would get turned on the barber and he would have his own haircut just as he had doled out to Adonis and Jimmy Hart and Danny Davis and a handful of others and of course Ron Bass earlier in 1989 wrapping up that feud so Jesse was very very happy to see him get his haircut and of course that would kick off a macho man versus beefcake feud which seemed rather peculiar to do because they did that at the taping right after WrestleMania V on the Brother Love Show. You had Savage had introduced Sherry as his manager, and then Beefcake came out and called her Scary Sherry, and then you had the confrontation there with Savage 
and Beefcake, where Beefcake gets beat down. They cut his hair because Beefcake stupidly brought out his bag and scissors with him. If you don't want to get your hair cut, make sure there are no scissors around. That's why Jimmy Valiant should have patted down Pez Watley back in 86 before he did that promo where he referred to him as the greatest black athlete. I've referred to that now twice. I should probably just do that episode at, at this point of NWA Worldwide, but it's one I always go back to. Beefcake kind of ruined the haircut match, I think, because every match he was in turned into a de facto haircut match where he gets the sleeper on the guy, and Tom Stone is yet another victim under two minutes. He's put out, and he starts hacking up the hair. Now, one thing that always intrigued me when I was younger is, oh, did they actually cut the guy's hair? Was it fake hair or whatever? And no, it was a real haircut that he was giving out to these guys. And what would happen is the jobbers would get a little extra money on top and a free haircut. They would clean him up after... They had their match with Beefcake. He did went through the whole, you know, routine. And they would get paid a little bit extra, just as they would to have the snake dumped on them for a match against Jake Roberts. So, pretty good deal for Tom Stone, because he gets a little bit more scratch. He gets a free haircut out of the deal. I mean, what's not to like? There's one line here where, where right before the match, that I'm just really taken by, given what happened later on. And Vince said they're arguing over whether Beefcake's haircuts are artistry. And Vince says that Macho Man is a butcher and that Beefcake is an artist. And I swear to God that this was actually said. I got to play this right now. No, 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 no. Wait a minute. Brutus is an artist. Macho Man was a butcher. An artist. Look at that. Now, little did we know in 1989 that Vince McMahon would have that completely backwards, as, of course, Ed Leslie would go on to become an actual butcher, one of his many gimmicks in WCW, although he was not, you know, a meat butcher. He butchered a friendship, is what he did there. And the macho man, who is accused of being a butcher here, would actually go on and become an artist, by releasing a rap album in the early 2000s that included a diss track of Hulk Hogan, Brutus Beefcake's best friend. Funny how these things work. Nevertheless, I did a little bit on Beefcake on Section309.com, covering his 1989 as part of my, quote, Model Year Wrestler series, of which I did 10 of them, and the 1996 Steve Austin one has been read more times than all of the other ones put together, according to the page stats. So I guess uh, I must have used some kind of search engine optimization on that one. But Beefcake's 89, he kind of went up to the main event, of course, teaming with Hogan each time for the SummerSlam 1989 main event, and then, of course, the No Holds Barred, the match, the movie, which, of course, was only one match, so it was going to be the main event. But, you know, he was steadily upper mid-card for his entire time there and into 1990, being the first guy to get a win over Mr. Perfect and then being in line to perhaps get the Intercontinental title before the parasailing accident on July 4th that effectively derailed his entire career because things were just never the same for him as an active wrestler. He had the brief Mega Maniacs run with Hogan in 93, but 
people just did not care about him at that point. You know, the famous promo on Raw where he's talking about how things have gone so totally wrong for him and he's all downtrodden. His wife has left him. People have died in his life. And you can tell that people just don't care about Brutus Beefcake anymore from the guy in the Manhattan Center audience who yells at him to kill himself. So things kind of fell apart there through maybe the parasailing accident was not his fault, but things just never got back to where they were for one Mr. Ed Leslie, and I just kept running into him years later. Now, for those of you who don't know, I'm a Boston Bruins season ticket holder, and I have been for most of the season since 1998, so a very long time. And in the 2009 playoffs, the Bruins were the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. And you're probably wondering how this ties in with Brutus the Barber. But it actually does. When they get to their second round series, they're heavily favored against the Carolina Hurricanes. And if you've been to a sporting event, you know, especially in a big city, they they like to put a celebrity on the Jumbotron. And, you know, I've seen this at an L.A. Kings game with Steve Carell, and I love the way that he just no-sold being on the Jumbotron, and I just love Steve Carell from that point on. Anyway, in this series against Carolina, the Bruins put Brutus the Barber on the Jumbotron multiple times as he was attending a lot of the games in that series. He was at least at two or three games in that series. There were four home games. Series went to seven. Carolina heavy underdog wins in overtime in Game 7 over the Bruins, who had 116 points on the season. So I think the lesson there is try to get a better celebrity for your Jumbotron than Brutus the freaking Barber. I know I'm channeling Conrad Thompson there, but luckily two years later when the Bruins did win the Stanley Cup, they had upgraded to the likes of Bill Belichick and Michael J. Fox. Gene Okerlund on the update here, and he's not at the desk, he's at the quote-unquote movie theater, probably the same one as the Gorilla Bobby on primetime two nights after this aired, and he's interviewing some of the people coming out of No Holds Barred and wants to know their their takes on this and get a lot of, oh, I gotta see that movie again, and I was on the edge of my seat, and All I can think is, I am glad that I was not interviewed coming out of No Holds Barred in Stoneham, Massachusetts in 1989. I saw the movie on the Sunday after it came out. And, you know, we recently, you know, celebrated Mother's Day. And every time Mother's Day comes around, I I love my mother dearly. And... I always think back, like, what, what, what our mothers have done for us over the years. And so many things that I can name. But for some reason, I always go back to that Sunday afternoon in 1989 that my mother sat through the movie No Holds Barred with me and my friend Derek Samuelson and has never commented on it, like, never said anything. I believe she was quiet on the way home and just sat through that entire movie without really making fun of it, 
commenting, how could you put me through this? Why did you do this to me? You are no longer my son. She never really said anything about it. And I did bring it up about a year ago, and I'm not entirely sure she remembered the whole thing. But I saw No Holds Barred, and like anybody, I'm like, oh, okay, all right. I like wondering, why is Axe from Demolition Jake Bullet in this movie? I, I was confused about stuff like that because I recognized Jake Bullet from the opening scene as axe from demolition without any face paint on for for some reason i i was able to pick up on that so you know we get a lot of fan commentary here and you know it's usually boilerplate stuff as i mentioned but the third guy they interview here has a like pretty spectacular mullet and the way he talks is rather amusing to me he's just a little too little too hyper. He's almost like a 1980s stand-up comic here doing a bit where he's celebrating the greatness of No Holds Barred for whatever reason. I was on the edge of my seat. I couldn't believe it. It was incredible. I was, I was so psyched. It's one of the movies, you go see him and, and you just get up. You feel so good when you get out of that movie theater. It feels excellent. I'm not sure the point he was trying to get across there. Uh, but the the way he just phrased everything was just... You know what it kind of reminded me of? It reminded me of that point in Goodfellas where Tommy shoots Spider in the little club there and everybody's looking at him like, what are you, a freaking idiot? I'm a good, I'm a good shot. I'm a good shot. And I don't know. Just the way he's talking is just really strange. But he's forever immortalized professing his love for No Holds Barred. So there is that but they don't give any name of any of these people they're they're just faces so if any of you were one of the people commenting on no holds barred please reach out to me at greetings from allentown at gmail.com because i would love to hear from you about your experience shilling for this hulk hogan vehicle Play Real Love by Jody Watley, not not only because it was a big hit at the time in 1989, but also because of its use on one piece of WWF programming that I will never forget as long as I live. And I have to say, I may make this a special episode of Greetings from Allentown at some point because it was so out there and so unbelievable that this happened. And I am, of course, referring to the fourth episode and what turned out to be the final episode of the Bobby Heenan Show, the half hour that was at the end of primetime wrestling and done without knowledge of the USA Network, apparently, where Bobby Heenan was on his own set, given his own show for 30 minutes, where he was allowed to, I guess in kayfabe, do whatever he wanted and had... Jameson as a co-host and on this final episode during one of the segments he welcomed an actress by the name of Heather Hunter 
And being 12 years old at the time, I was not exactly hip or wise to what Heather Hunter was. And long story short, because I I really feel like I got to do a special on just that episode or even just that segment. Heather Hunter does a strip tease to the song Real Love by Jody Watley and eventually shows her boobs to Bobby Heenan, who falls out of his chair and Jameson does a funny bit kind of covering up his crotch or his shame, as it were. And Heather Hunter, you can go ahead and look her up. You might want to do it in incognito mode or something. I I don't know how much you really care about that stuff showing up, but uh, yes, yeah, she's an adult film actress. And just watching it, it is unbelievable that they did that segment in 1989, the WWF. Although... There is the thought that it was at 10.30 at night on a Monday, but it was during the summertime, and I had taped that episode of Primetime Wrestling, and I watched it over and over again, uh, maybe for ulterior reasons, for the Heather Hunter striptease. I never quite saw the humor in it until I was a little bit older, but man, oh man, the fact that that actually happened is just crazy. And also crazy is the fact that Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard being in the WWF, as I mentioned earlier, and here they're taking on Eddie Slater and Tom Stock, two job guys that I really have nothing to say about because they don't have links on any of the sites, so what can I really say there? The Brainbusters, their their run was at least, you know, it was satisfactory to me in terms of they got to face all the opponents that you would have wanted them to face in kind of a dream scenario matchup. They were in the NWA. Of course, they jump in 1988 in part due to their frustration with Dusty Rhodes as the booker. Now, of course, Dusty would get dropped as booker a couple of months later. But Tully and Arn were not happy with Dusty's booking. Tully had done a what was supposed to be a secret interview with the Turner people where they asked him about Dusty and then of course they you know the word immediately gets back to Dusty so then Tully is in a situation where he's said some bad things about the guy who's booking the promotion so they might as well have gotten out of there they also did not get their balloon payments from Jim Crockett promotions so technically JCP was in breach which is why they were able to walk on effectively no notice in September of 1988 and dropping the titles on basically no notice to the Midnight Express at a house show in Philadelphia. And they come in and their first real feud of note is with the Rockers. And they're on Survivor Series 1988. They have a brawl with the Rockers where both both sides get DQ'd. And eventually they have a match on Saturday night's main event, which would take place in early 1989. And it is one of the great Saturday night main event matches that ever was. It ended in a no contest, pretty much. So kind of the same as what you had at the Survivor Series, where both teams getting disqualified. It might have been a count out. I'm trying to remember. It's been a few months since I've seen that match. And... Uh, that was kind of an even feud. There was no real blow-off. And the thought was, well, why didn't they have the Rockers versus the Brain Busters at WrestleMania Five? That definitely would have been a good idea. Instead, they kind of crossed things up a bit. They put 
the Rockers against the Twin Towers in a little guys versus big guys match. And then you have the Brainbusters facing the returning Strike Force. And that was an interesting match in that you have the 1988 WWF Tag Champions, or at least from very early in the year, Strike Force facing the kind of most of 1988 NWA Tag Champions, Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard. Oddly enough, the day that the Strike Force lost the tag titles at WrestleMania 4 was the same day that Arn and Tully lost the NWA tag titles at the Clash of the Champions to Barry Windham and Lex Luger. Of course, Arn and Tully would get those titles back in a few weeks when Barry Windham turned on Lex Luger and joined the Horsemen, and they ended up winning it at a show down in Florida. Then the Busters get a weird feud with the Bushwhackers, which was pretty much house shows before... They challenged Demolition, which they had a match on Saturday Night's Main Event shortly before this. About a week before this aired, the infamous Hogan is attacked by Zeus outside of the cage, Saturday Night's Main Event. And the Busters won that match by disqualification, which earned them a rematch on the next Saturday Night's Main Event in July, where they did win the tag titles. And then you get the match with the Hart Foundation at SummerSlam, in which... The Busters won in the opening contest of that pay-per-view. And that pretty much rounded out all the kind of dream matches I think you could have conceivably put them in, jumping to the WWF. Now, of course, they're coming off the update segment with No Holds Barred, so Vince and Jesse are going to talk about that a little. And the body says that the movie is going to be a huge success because he's in the movie. You know, he was in Predator, which Jesse only reminds us of about every 25 seconds, it feels like. Vince kind of gets the upper hand here by kind of needling Jesse, knowing his distaste for Hulk Hogan, saying that, you know, he's just riding Hogan's coattails at this point, and that all Jesse has ever done is align himself alongside mega stars like Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is kind of true. I mean, Jesse was never the star of his movies. He was just kind of a valued player. But, you know, every movie needs a Robert Ory. Of course, you might remember Robert Ory as kind of the role player on the Houston Rockets and the Los Angeles Lakers and later the San Antonio Spurs NBA championship teams where he wasn't the best player, but he was probably about the fourth best player and a kind of a key cog. So that's what Jesse Ventura was in a lot of his movies. So Jesse immediately changes the subject. How about these brain busters? Boy, they are quite a team here. And they're really dominant in this match. And the comparisons with the current day revival, of course, I believe Dash Wilder is out with an injury now, so they're not entirely active. But the revival over the last year and a half really evoking, reviving, if you will, some of the Arn and Tully catalog here. And the thing that I love about what Arn and Tully would do is they would make sure to do all of their cheating when the referee's back was turned. And that was kind of an important point. You'd either have Heenan kind of intervening to get the referee's attention, or they would use the guy in the other corner, 
you know, draw him into the ring, you know, by either suckering him on the apron or whatever, and the referee's attention would be diverted there too. Uh, the job guys who I can't really even tell apart because uh, they just kind of both raised their arms at the introduction, so I don't know which one's Slater and which one's Stock. It really doesn't matter. Set up. Uh, Tully whips one of the guys into Arn for a big clothesline on the floor, and I love the little detail of Arn sell- uh, selling the arm like it hurt, that he clotheslined him so hard he hurt his own arm. And they throw him back in, and Tully gets the guy up. Arn grabs him and puts him in a position for, like, a suplex. And he actually turns it into a brain buster. So, kind of neat there that the brain buster is actually working together on an actual brain buster. Now, their finishing move was the spike pile driver, which technically was an illegal move. But as I said, they would make sure to do all of their cheating behind the referee's back. In this case, instead of using Heenan, usually Heenan would get up on the apron or call for the referee's attention or whatever. They uh, had drawn the other tag guy into the ring. So Danny Davis, the referee, who, by the way, just returned as a referee at this point and was on double secret probation or some sort of nonsense. He's diverted away so that they can get in the spike pile driver, which doesn't always look great because sometimes Tully doesn't get the top of the, you know, the boot of the guy to really spike him in. And this time he only kind of gets like the knee pad or whatever. But it's Arn and Tully, so I'm willing to forgive them on this on this one. And they pick up the win here. And they're going to be getting the tag team titles within six weeks. And I really enjoy any of their matches from the WWF. There's one really bizarre... Well, okay, there, there, there are two matches. One of them is an Arn Anderson singles match against Mega Man Tom McGee in which Anderson loses by countout, which is completely bizarre considering that McGee was a guy who was never really ever on TV and Arn Anderson was feeling new and in this tag team that was on the way up and they had him lose by countout. I don't know if that was one of those put them in their place kind of deals. You had another Brain Busters match where they were facing off against Tim Horner and George South, which definitely seems like something out of the Techwood studios, but uh, nope, actually took place on WWF television. Again, just so weird to see Arn and Tully in this context. bit of other business to get to before the next match we go to the event center and again as was the case a couple weeks ago no particular event to promote here we got the Rougeau brothers who are cutting a promo on the rockers who they had roughed up a few weeks earlier on television and they have these new capes with the fleur-de-lis on them which it always amused me how they kept the fleur-de-lis, you know, a symbol of the province of Quebec all along while, you know, saying that they love America and they had moved to Memphis, Tennessee, which 
had to be some kind of rib on Jerry Lawler. The fact that they would choose Memphis, of course, it might have just been because that's where Jimmy Hart came from. It might have just been as simple as that. And the Rougeaus in 89 had some good matches with the Rockers. They had some, I guess what they were called, marathon matches at house shows where they would go 60 minutes with the Rockers as kind of a fill time sort of deal that were fairly well received there. And this was kind of the last year of the Rougeaus as by the Royal Rumble 1990 you would see Raymond working his way out and then Jacques would disappear as a while for a while before coming back as the Mountie or as you Canadians know him Jacques Rougeau because of course they had to sub in Jacques Rougeau whenever he would say I am the Mountie so when you watch the local Canadian promos with Jacques Rougeau I am Jacques Rougeau Afterwards, we get a much more ridiculous promo from the Red Rooster, and I'm just left shaking my head as to what he's talking about here. He's talking about how he's debuting a new move called the Flying Chicken Wing, which is pretty much, as I recall, a flying hammerlock, which George the Animal Steel was using, and George Steel, not exactly uh, much of a seeker, much of a worker in the ring. Terry Taylor, as I had mentioned, when he originally debuted, he did have a few matches as Terry Taylor and actually used the move that would eventually become known as the sharpshooter in WWF. But that was dropped when he became the Red Rooster. And that gimmick, there's been so much said about the Red Rooster and oh how Terry Taylor could have taken to it and all this and that kind of stuff. Let me just play right now what Terry Taylor cut as a promo here as the Red Rooster. I first of all want to thank each and every one of my little rooster boosters out there for your support and especially the chicks. Things are going great, but everybody's coming up to me saying, Hey, Rooster, what is that new move you're doing that makes everybody give up? It's cool, but we don't know what it is. Well, it's called the flying chicken wing, because when I get somebody up in that hold, it uses their own body weight against them, and I feel like that's the hold that's going to take me to the top of the World Wrestling Federation. Now, there's all sorts of guys that think that they got a reverse port, and they think that they are the only ones that won't be put in it. But I'm telling everybody out there, all the rooster boosters that are on my side, stay with me. We're going to the top. Everything's going great. And the thing that's going to take us there is the flying chicken wing. All right. How many people do you think actually went up to Terry Taylor during his Red Rooster run and actually asked him earnestly about anything that was going on in his life, in his career, whatever? I'll just just move on here. They show a clip from the recent Saturday Night's Main Event match between Jimmy Snuka and Boris Zukov. And Zukov is in singles action here because, and this is something that is often forgotten because it seemed like Nikolai Volkov was there for just this one long run from 84 to whenever. He actually disappeared for a while in the summer of 1989, and he, I guess, worked some independence or whatever, and Zukov was there by himself, but it kind of, in retrospect, felt like that the Bolsheviks were there together all along. So Zukov was doing this kind of work, and the work in this case was putting over the returning Jimmy Snuka in his first big match after his 
bizarre return at WrestleMania 5 where they just introduce him apropos of nothing in the beginning of the Ronnie Garvin Dino Bravo match we introduce Ronnie Garvin Dino Bravo we got a battle of two Quebecers here and uh, let's introduce the guy from the Fiji Islands who disappeared four years ago and who a lot of your fan base probably doesn't remember although I mean I knew about him from the tapes but he was you know much older and I had assumed he had just disappeared in those four years but of course he was actually working the AWA for much of that time which at some points in the 80s was the exact equivalent of disappearing it's shocking that (laughs) yeah well in any event we got Greg Valentine now, and he makes his way to the ring for his match against Chris Zarna. But first, we have Tony Schiavone, the ringside reporter, who they would use on Superstars from time to time, kind of ringside to interview guys either before or after matches. And he gets Valentine on the way to the ring. You can hear the that annoying siren from Jimmy Hart's megaphone that I could never quite figure out at the time what exactly that was, but it was a thing on Jimmy Hart's megaphone where you push the button and it plays the damn siren or whatever. So Valentine here, he <laughs> he's he's feeling really good about himself at this time because he's he's back in singles action and he's got a streak of wins going and that included a win over Rugged Ronnie Garvin on Superstars a few weeks earlier where Garvin had to retire. It was a career-ending match and that was that took place because Valentine had lost via a surprise roll-up shortly before that to Garvin and that was a rematch where both guys put their careers on the line. And Garvin, of course, this was an angle that Garvin actually proposed coming in. It was an idea that he had in the NWA that never got used. I'm, I don't know if it would have been better or worse than him dressing up in drag as Miss Atlanta Lively, but nevertheless, Garvin uh, loses the match and has to retire and then goes through a series of other jobs and at this particular point in time, he is a referee. And we actually see him refereeing a match later on in this show. Valentine, to his credit, he, he can't help but rub it in here. He dedicates his match to Rugged Ronnie Garvin, which I think is kind of funny. I don't believe in the fairness doctrine here, but I am going to give a little bit of time to Chris Zarna, who would go off and on, sometimes as Chris Zarna, sometimes as Chris Zarna off. But he worked as an enhancement talent on several WWF shows from 87 through 89. But more interestingly, and no, that would not be that he worked in the AWA shortly before that, he apparently ran his own indie promotion in Wisconsin called Packerland Pro Wrestling. So, nice little play off the NFL franchise of Wisconsin. And looking at it, he didn't have all that much success there he's known mostly as the cobra not to be confused with the junior heavyweight from the early 1980s but he did win the packerland pro wrestling title over buck zumhoff in 1991 so he beat buck zumhoff so that's nice 
considering how horrible a human being Buck Zumhoff is. Anyway, he's in there against Greg Valentine here, and there ain't much to say about Zarna at this point, as this is a quick match. It did not take Valentine 15 minutes to get warmed up, as Gorilla Monsoon was so fond of saying. Vince and Jesse have a conversation about Valentine's pre-match promo there, and you know, the rubbing it in and all that. And Jesse points out that athletes with egos are going to do that, that he accomplished something by ending the career of the, quote, legendary Ronnie Garvin, which was a little little weird considering that the WWF did not really acknowledge the prior history of Ronnie Garvin, and he had only been in the promotion for about four or five months at that point, so for him to be referred to as the legendary Ronnie Garvin is a little bit weird in that context. Vince asked Jesse how he would feel if he were Ronnie Garvin in this case, and I really admire Jesse's honesty here. He says, I don't know, and uh, I thought that was kind of neat. We get an inset promo from Ronnie Garvin, who effectively just tells Valentine to keep his mouth shut because he had been saying some things about him like we had earlier on there. One thing about Valentine that I liked in this match, I don't know if he always did a vertical suplex this, this way, but he gets the guy up in the vertical position and then just kind of throws him down from that spot rather than coming down with the man and landing on his own back and effectively taking a bump on his own felt like it made the move slightly more effective and you know it was pretty good visual there valentine of course wearing the shin guard at this time something he had started in the early summer of 1988 that was done as a device to make the figure four a more devastating hold that somehow if you turn around the shin guard it makes the hold more effective because now you have this hard shin piece there where ordinarily it would be I guess softer calf muscle I've given some real thought to this over the years and that's the way I imagine it is that you have a you have a harder thing pressing up against the knee or leg or whatever and I figured that's how you can sell that and he gets the submission really quickly and what they were doing was the jobbers would give up in the figure four almost the second it was applied thereby implying that the hold was way more effective with this shin guard than without and valentine this feud with garvin would go all the way up to the royal rumble 1990 so this would carry for over six months longer because you could carry out the feud for a while because Garvin is not wrestling. He's refereeing, and then when he isn't refereeing anymore, he becomes the ring announcer, and then eventually you get to the bit where Valentine begs for him to be reinstated, and then you can have the series of matches, get the blow-off at the Royal Rumble in a match that I thoroughly enjoyed, despite the fact that it was a submission match and the guys kept going for pins, which... Would have been nice if they had done it once or twice. It added a touch of authenticity. But for God's sakes, the second time Ronnie Garvin went for a roll-up, I I was kind of losing my mind there, at least the last time I was watching it. But and this is also kind of the last good year for Valentine as a single wrestler because when you get past this Garvin feud, you roll him into Rhythm and Blues, which is one of those things where you just put the 
Captain Picard facepalm meme all over that because there's not a single person who liked that. Honky probably didn't like having him as a partner. Valentine himself hated it. I have never known anyone who's ever enjoyed Greg Valentine in that role other than when he was pretending to play guitar, which was kind of funny at WrestleMania 6. He did have that nice little role in the interview with (laughs) Steve Allen, maybe the most underrated WrestleMania personality ever. He did like three bits on that WrestleMania 6 show, and they were all gold. And I, Valentine said something in the promo, like, call the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and tell them we're on our way. And Steve Allen just says, <laughs> I'll call them and let you, let them, warn them that you're coming. <laughs> just great stuff there. But Valentine, yeah, th- this was a nice little feud to kind of bring him back to uh, relevance from a singles perspective. He'd get a win at SummerSlam over the fading Hercules and... He had a pretty good 1989, if I do say so myself. Although, honestly, probably not as good of a year as he might have had if, as rumored in the fall of 88, if he had jumped from the WWF to Jim Crockett Promotions, as it still was at the time, and became part of the Four Horsemen, replacing Arn and Telly, who had gone in the other direction. Because you have a Four Horsemen of Wyndham, Flair... Valentine and fill in the other piece. I I feel like that could have been really good too. But Valentine's still pretty good at this point in 1989. Now we have a quick jump to the event center. And Bret Hart, they put him over as having excellence of execution. Sean Mooney does in introducing the hitman. But he does not exactly have excellence of execution in his promos at that point in 1989 as he was in kind of a weird singles phase, and they had a tag match at WrestleMania Five against Honky Tonk Man and Greg Valentine, the Hart Foundation. And then they split up. They went their own ways for a while in the spring of 89, and then they reunited by SummerSlam, so I don't know what was going on. Well, Brett here, he's got his sights set high, but he's not entirely sure what he's aiming for here. You know, in the WWF, there is a lot of changes. And one important change is now Rick Rude holds the Continental Championship belt. That is something I want. I tasted the glory of the tag team belts with the anvil, but this is something for me. Singly, I've always wanted. The Continental belt. Look, Brett, I'm going to stop you right there. Because either you're referring to the Intercontinental Belt, which I think you're referring to because you're referring to Rick Rude as the champion, and he was the Intercontinental Champion. I don't think you're jumping to Continental and going to fight Jeff Jarrett for the CWA title as he was the champion in May of 1989. Although eventually you will face Jeff Jarrett down the road, but nobody will really care all that much because, after all, it's just Jeff Jarrett. And since this event center is apparently devoted to guys who were in tag teams and are now temporary singles before rejoining the same tag team that they were in, we hear from the Barbarian and Mr. Fuji. Not a whole lot there. Your usual Fuji stick. Uh, Barbarian mumbles a few words. Nothing, Nothing too great. We do see the Barbarian a little bit later on this show.
quick plug there for the No Holds Barred magazine, which, despite how big of a fan that I described earlier that I was in 1989, I, I did not get the No Holds Barred magazine. That was a bridge too far. Considering I was already getting Pro Wrestling Illustrated, Inside Wrestling, The Wrestler, whatever was there of the quote-unquote after mags, I was getting at the supermarket, so No Holds Barred probably wasn't even available where I was, even though it was New England, the home territory. So, be that as it may, we got Tito Santana facing off against Jake Milliman. I particularly like when Tito's music hits, Vince says, All right, it's time to get down, as if Tito's music is some sort of dance music that we should be getting down to. Now, Jake Milliman, he... He is uh, primarily known as being an enhancement talent in the WWF, but also an enhancement talent in the AWA, and became kind of a symbol of the AWA's last days, uh, fair to him or not. There are two particular things that kind of stand out. One, during the infamous Team Challenge series in either 89 or 90. It really doesn't matter. I mean, it was on life support and it was in the infamous pink studio with no audience that this was filmed. Milliman defeated Colonel De Beers in a turkey on a pole match, which totally sounds like it was booked by Vince Russo, but it was not. They had a turkey up on a pole in the corner, and what happened was Milliman was down in the center of the ring. The referee had been knocked out. Colonel De Beers went up, grabbed the turkey, and when he went back to wake the referee, the turkey was grabbed out of his hands by Milliman, who then was seen with it by the newly awake referee, and he was awarded the victory. So that's one. And in August of 1990, and this had to have been one of the last AWA shows that there ever was, Milliman won a battle royal. And that tells you all you need to know about perhaps the other participants in that battle royal. Now Tito, who of course had Strike Force had just broken up, and the million-year war between him and Ricky Martel had only just begun at this time. But an even older thing you got going on is Jesse Ventura's insistence on calling Tito Santana Chico. And he says that Chico is an illegal alien, and Vince, maybe he's in it, maybe he's an illegal alien. And Vince uh, points out he went to te- school at West Texas, and Ventura always with the retort, well, maybe he was a foreign exchange student. Of course, Tito did go to school at West Texas, along with Tully Blanchard, who we saw earlier, Ted DiBiase, a whole host of guys out of uh, that school who played football and probably better known as a wrestling factory these days. Now, for what it's worth, in terms of the Chico thing, Jesse Ventura addressed that. I believe it was on Talk is Jericho. I've listened to Ventura in a lot of different interviews, like the Adam Carolla show, and he's been on other places. I think he was on the Howard Stern show. Of course, now they have the fake Jesse Ventura on the Stern show from time to time. And 
the subject of Tito Santana came up, and Jesse said that Tito actually liked that he would call him Chico because, of course, it would kind of make Tito Santana stand out in people's minds. And uh, he and Jesse were actually very close when they were in the WWF in the 1980s, so that was kind of nice to hear there. I mean, it was something that, you know, would people would remember Tito Santana by. We had an inset promo from Rick Martel, and Vince and Jesse start talking about Martel, and they, they note his newfound aggressiveness, and that they say that they've never seen Martel look better, or at least Jesse says that. And Vince says that maybe it is the Doctor of Style Slick's influence on Martel, as Martel had taken Slick as a manager, and this is something that would not last very long. It was over with and done by the end of 1989 as it was a connection that a source close to Martell on Twitter there is a Rick Martell Twitter account out there but it's not actually him it's apparently somebody connected to him and Martell uh, felt that the connection really wasn't working with him and Slick so he just kind of went off as a single on his own at a point where the WWF would actually have heels without managers, which was unheard of much earlier in the 1980s. Get some arm drags by Tito, and Milliman yells out, My arm hurts! Which is kind of funny. Milliman, kind of a weird-looking guy, very, very pudgy, with this long rat tail. Uh, they go back to talking about Zeus and Hogan on the cover of that magazine as... Tito is working the left arm there, and they're talking about Zeus's size vis-a-vis Hogan, and Vince says that he believes that Zeus is 6'11", and that Jesse wishes he was as big as Zeus, and Jesse says, if I was 6'11", I'd be in the NBA, which is funny to think about Jesse Ventura as like a backup center in the NBA. Uh, Milliman, uh, gets a brief little comeback there a small bit of just punchy offense but Tito wards him off hits the flying forearm Ronnie Garvin down for a very awkward three count because he's not a natural referee Milliman argues with Garvin after the match which is to set up the (laughs) hands of stone punch by Ronnie Garvin laying out Jake Milliman somewhere David Crockett got excited watching that one and Tito picks up the win, and he's out of there pretty quickly to allow the post-match confrontation to take place. They then cut to a kid eating an ice cream bar, one of those great WWF ice cream bars that were far too short-lived and were always my thing of choice whenever the ice cream truck would pull around the local Little League field or wherever in my hometown <laughs> but Jess, Jesse is wholly unimpressed with the two kids eating it look at that little glutton which I thought was a, <laughs> a fun way to talk about a kid there you know I just figured out why Chico probably goes by Tito why you don't think he's an illegal alien do you McMahon Jesse come on went to school down in West Texas don't matter, he could have been a foreign exchange student. Oh, really? I had to cycle back to that for two reasons. Number one, you can kind of tell that Vince is trying not to laugh when 
when Jesse says that he goes by Chico because he's an illegal alien. And secondly, it's kind of ironic, given all the kind of Mexican food stuff and all that, that Jesse Ventura laid out there, that Jesse actually lives in Mexico now. So, theoretically, I guess he would be eating Mexican food all the time and perhaps dealing with somebody named Chico. Who knows? Now it's time for the first Brother Love segment that I've covered on Greetings from Allentown. And in retrospect, well, back in the day, I hated Brother Love as much as anybody else. I found it annoying. I knew it was something related to the televangelist preachers because I knew about all that stuff. But... Now, over the last few years, I enjoy watching these old brother love shows on YouTube because I like Pritchard's commitment to the bit. It's very well done, and a lot of stuff happened on the brother love show. You had Earthquake crushing Hogan. You had Boss Man beating the hell out of Hogan. You had, a shortly before this, a big Rick Martel tito Santana brawl. I mean, there's a whole number of things that happened on the Brother Love Show. And you have this lovely music that played underneath the whole time. Something that I keep on my iPod because, well, it's it's very soothing. It's along the lines of the Kamala music that I referred to in episode one. Unfortunately, this is not one of those Brother Love shows where stuff happened. As we have the Doctor of Style stuff. And he's in a red suit, and he's bragging about Hogan getting beaten down before the cage match at Saturday Night's Main Event the previous week. And it's thought, oh, is he attempting to sign Zeus? And he kind of makes the point that Slick takes care of his business, but Zeus can't necessarily be controlled. Now, what Slick is referring to with the Saturday Night Main Event match is that's the famous one where Zeus is at the corner of the ring waiting for Hogan as Hogan comes to the ring and he does that Zeus thing where he comes down with the forearms on the trapezius or on the neck or whatever and what actually happened and I never would have noticed this if it wasn't for Bruce Pritchard's podcast is that when they did the original run at the Saturday Night Main Event taping they It came off so poorly and Zeus was working so light and not laying in any sort of believable shot. So what they did the next night at the Superstars taping, the Saturday night's main event was in conjunction with a wrestling challenge taping in Des Moines. The next night in Omaha, they just did that part over again because they already had a Hogan versus Big Boss Man cage match. So you still had the same setup and they just kind of spliced it in. And that's one of the most interesting things that I've learned from the Pritchard podcast. That's definitely not something he would make up. Uh, You do have to keep a filter on, as I always say, when you listen to these guys in the business who talk about things that happened in the past, memories can be faulty and all that. Slick says that he's going to go see No Holds Barred, and that's just one of a long series of just 
promos that strike me as weird where you have the heels talking about going to see the movie. And I've watched a lot of June 89 WWF television, and of course nobody's going to criticize the movie. They only say that Hulk Hogan should stick to acting, as Bad News Brown said, or that Slick says that Zeus is the real star of the movie, which was kind of the narrative they were going for with the heels on this. But it's just so strange to hear these people talking about going to see the movie that has the top babyface starring in it so that they can then have this comment on it. It's just really, really strikes me as odd. I mean, you were big, Jesse, uh, to a certain extent in your day, but at least you were slow and awkward, you know what I mean? This guy is not just big. McMahon, why does jealousy dwell inside you so much over me? Jealousy? Yeah. I mean, you take every chance you can to make derogatory remarks about my illustrious career in the ring. I thought I was playing you a compliment. Compliment? Jesse, everybody... You said I was slow. You said I was clumsy. Well, yeah, but... And I didn't say how slow you were, how clumsy you were. We could get into that, too. Vince was feeling a little feisty on this show, going after Jesse, calling him slow and awkward and all that. This is in the shadow of the Barbarian with Mr. Fuji taking on Lance Allen, who they really put over as Lance Allen is introduced, saying he's really put together. And Lance Allen was out of Windy City Pro Wrestling, which is why he was probably easily able to make it up to Duluth for the taping. He was a part of something called the Windy City Dream Team with Eddie Strong, but I can't find out too much about them other than the fact that they got a win over Buddy Rose and Doug Summers back in 1988 when they had just been coming off their AWA run, Rose and Summers, and their big feud with the Midnight Rockers. So that win would have meant something there. We have Fuji and the Barbarian. Barbarian does not have the antlers or anything. That would not come until the following year when he was with Bobby Heenan. And Fuji just kind of cuts the exact same promo as always, as kind of an insert promo there. And he says, look what I, look what Mr. Mr. Fuji created. I'm sorry, that's that's a bad Fuji. But he says, look what I created. And I'm shouting at the TV. I'm like, he's not new. You didn't create him. He was there, and you left Demolition to take on the Powers of Pain, and now they're not even a team. It was not a good 89 for Mr. Fuji as a manager. I got the kayfabe hat on right now. So think about other managers in 1989. You had Bobby Heenan, his biggest year in WWF. You had Sensational Sherry, or The Sensational Sherry, a breakout year for... The woman who would become the queen, who uh, is just just outstanding. Jimmy Hart chugging along. You had the Doctor of Style Slick, probably his biggest year too, because while he never managed a champion, 1989 is the year that he's front and center with the boss man and Akeem on the main event. You had the cage match on Saturday night's main event shortly before this. So, And then you got Fuji, who had left the tag team champions at the end of 88 for what he thought was a better team and made a really, really poor decision. I'm wonder, I'm tr- trying to compare that to something in history, 
And I was thinking along the lines of it would have been like if James Worthy had left the Lakers in 1986 somehow, or if, well, the example that I keep thinking of is Albert Pujols leaving the Cardinals. I feel like that was a good marriage, but the Cardinals certainly stayed strong after he left. But the Barbarian, uh, one of the things here is that he never quite got to a point. I, I had a vision for him a short time ago where he could have been a viable challenger to the Warrior or Hogan in 91. And he gets made fun of a lot for being the number one contender to the WCW title held by Ron Simmons at Halloween Havoc 92. And it did seem strange. They had the little build-up vignettes with Cactus Jack training him to take a power slam, and then he ends up losing via the power slam anyway. He did a lot of good things in the ring, and they remark on his agility here. He's got the clothesline off the top rope as the finisher. Barbarian, also one of the best big boots in the business. It was very excellent the way he did it. One thing that was hurting him right here is he's wearing his Powers of Pain gear, and whenever you break up a tag team, and maybe they were just thinking it was going to be temporary, and that, that's why, but it, it's not going to help the guy because you just see him in the tag team gear and you just want to make fun of him for not moving on with his life. It's it's the Tito Santana thing where Tito is wearing the Strike Force gear two and a half years after Strike Force broke up. Another example of that is a couple years later when you have the short-lived breakup of the Rock and Roll Express in mid-1991 WCW, which historically tends to be forgotten probably because WCW not in a good place at that time you had Ricky Morton becoming Richard Morton and then for a while just continuing to wear the same old Rock and Roll Express tights that he had all along so you're watching it and it doesn't feel like a a clean break from the past as I mentioned Barbarian gets the win with the flying clothesline and Vince he starts narrating the replay and Jesse no doubt very upset about Vince's comments about him being slow and awkward just yells at him look at the will you shut up what I'm sorry Jesse is so amazing because of all the years of Vince McMahon on commentary can you think of anybody else telling Vince McMahon to just shut up on commentary and this isn't even live either I mean they're they're doing this commentary in a studio in Connecticut or something. So, I don't know. <laughs> oh, the banter. And speaking of banter, right now we have the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, with the first Dusty Rhodes vignette. And at this time, Dusty had already had a match by the time this aired. He debuted May 29th in Montreal at the Forum. And then had a second match at the Boston Garden on June 3rd. Both of them against Ted DiBiase, filling in for Jake the Snake Roberts, who was mired in some sort of legal issues during that entire summer. So, don't want to get too far into that. Dusty, of course, did all these vignettes, and they. it is thought that maybe they were trying to make him look bad because they put Dusty into a lot of odd situations here, such as he's a trash man, he's the pizza man in this case, he's a gas station attendant, which might be my 
favorite one, the gas station one, although this pizza one is pretty good too. And in, when Dusty would talk about these vignettes in the interviews that I've heard with him, I, I do like how he kind of took all this ridiculousness as a personal challenge to him to get the stuff over. And he, he did. Now, the run was not very long before it kind of petered out. I mean, by the summer of 1990, things had started to turn. and They only turned up the gas on him where, oh, we're going to stick you with Sapphire at the end of 1989. And he made it work for a little while, but <laughs> he was in his mid-40s and wasn't quite as mobile as he once was. So there was a very limited... Uh, time that he would be effective there, but it was good to see the dream in this sort of context. Now, let me set the scene for this vignette here. Uh, they're outside, and I can't quite tell if it's a dirt road. I think it's a paved road that he's on, and you see a pink VW Bug with three American flags positioned on it, and as it pulls up, you can see on the side that it says Americana Pizza. So Dusty is not delivering for a chain. Apparently he has opened his own pizza establishment. And he hops out of the car, and for whatever reason, the first thing that I notice is the giant thing of chewing tobacco in his back pocket, because it's got that the, the circle there. He's got a white shirt on, and the sleeves are cut off. And on the white shirt, in what appears to be a Sharpie or some kind of black magic marker... He has written pizza on his shirt. So, obviously, uh, as a small businessman, Dusty knows how to keep costs down, which is something that would have been helpful for him in Jim Crockett promotions the year before when they were going bankrupt. But that's neither here nor there. So he's got three pizzas that he's delivering to this house. And one of them is Sardines Pizza. And then his personal favorite, Pig Feet Pizza with snout on the side. Now, I'd have to imagine that they uh, chose that because of the way it would sound coming out of Dusty's mouth. The third one that he actually has, and he doesn't reference it until he gets to the door, is oyster pizza. And I love oysters. I don't know if I'd really want it on pizza. But as somebody who once ate 60 oysters in one sitting, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not going to turn away from oysters. I, I would give that a shot. So he goes up, rings the bell, and it's this very diminutive woman who has ordered three slices. And I don't know if she's got a family in there. It's it's a very peculiar order when you think about it, that all these toppings, it's sardine and pig's feet and oysters. Like what? I don't know what's going on at that house on that day, but hey, you know, what, whatever floats your boat, I guess. And Dusty uh, has a slice. Uh, she actually invites him to have a slice. And Dusty, uh, <laughs> cue up your jokes here. Dusty, I guess, accidentally grabs two slices and he takes a bite out of it and says, "Is good for your tummy and yummy, yummy, yummy. And then makes the smiley face to the camera as was customary in these vignettes. And you get the little graphic in the corner there that says American Dream. And the way they would work it is... The person that he was interacting with would always say, Hey, aren't you? And they wouldn't say Dusty Rhodes. They would just have the American Dream graphic on there. And I think that Dusty Rhodes was... Everybody knew who he was at that time. But these vignettes were 
a way to introduce him again and kind of give him that common man gimmick. The, the polka dots, the polka dots were a bit much, but again, Dusty saw it all as a personal challenge to him. And they would run these vignettes for another three, four weeks before Dusty would appear on TV and his first big kind of angle was with the big boss man where he stole the nightstick from the boss man after a match and stole the hat of the Dr. Style Slick, which is why you see him with those things during his 1989 SummerSlam promo for his match against the Honky Tonk Man. I do think it's interesting that they threw him right in there with Ted DiBiase right away, considering that Ted would be his final match at the 1991 Royal Rumble slightly less than two years later. Of course, you had Virgil there, which, of course, the name Virgil, Dusty Rhodes' real first name. And also interesting that Dusty, one of his first matches taking place in the Boston Garden, a place that he had been before with Jim Crockett Promotions. They had done some Boston Garden shows, and in 1988, it actually impacted one of the angles that Dusty had booked around the time of the Clash of Champions. It was actually the day before where he attacked Tully Blanchard with a baseball bat and accidentally hit one of the broadcasters. It was one of the Crockett's or something like that. And Dusty gets suspended, but the suspension doesn't take place until April 16th. And why why would you delay the suspension out a certain time? Well, Dusty, they had a show at the Boston Garden on April 15th, 1988, and Dusty wanted to work the show as Dusty Rhodes instead of that cockamamie Midnight Rider nonsense because Dusty is a huge Boston Celtics fan for whatever reason, but of course they were red hot in the 1980s with Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish, and all that. Now, we have King Hacksaw Jim Duggan during that brief period after defeating Haku, but before losing the crown to the macho man Randy Savage, he's taking on Dave Wagner. Wagner, the only thing I really found about him was he was in a team called the Alaskans with Rick Renslow in the AWA in 85 and 86, and Wagner, who has kind of the beard there uh, that you can kind of grab, sort of like Jim the Anvil Neidhart, has the distinction of losing to the Rockers on TV in both the AWA and the WWF, so not too many guys can probably say that. When the Great Gates of Kiev play for Jim Duggan, uh, Ventura, he thinks that Haku is coming out because the coronation of Duggan had only taken place a couple of weeks earlier. And Jesse says that Duggan represents dictatorship. I do, I do want to point out, there's a guy in the crowd at the 34 minute 18 mark in the video who is wearing a blue Mr. Perfect shirt. And very rare to see heel merchandise in a WWF crowd in 1989. Anyway, Duggan has the U.S. flag with him with the whole, the cape and the crown. 
And as a student of history, there's just something really off about carrying yourself as a king, but also trying to carry yourself as an American patriot. It didn't make sense to me at age 10, and it really doesn't make sense to me now. Because the United States, the whole point of the American Revolution was to fight the tyranny of a king. Literally, that's what it was. Jesse, of course, goes right in on Duggan because he would always make fun of him for being cross-eyed or having snot hanging out of his nose, like at WrestleMania Five. But he refers to Duggan, is he the ugliest king ever? And that made me wonder, is Duggan the ugliest king? And oh no, not by a long shot, because in Europe, a lot of royal families have a rich, rich history of inbreeding because there was a very limited pool that you would consider to be royalty or to be with royalty. And unfortunately, some sad things happened. And the one name that you could definitely say is uglier than Jim Duggan on his ugliest day is a king of Spain, Charles II, who was uh, among the last of the Habsburgs. And this is a rare instance of somebody asked a question on Yahoo questions or one of those type things and said, who is the ugliest monarch? And somebody gave a informative and entertaining answer at the same time. So I will read it here. As mentioned earlier, Charles II, King of Spain, the last of the Habsburg, a product of massive inbreeding, he soiled himself in public, was an idiot, and had a host of over-disgusting physical and mental problems. He was unable to chew. His tongue was so large that his speech could barely be understood, and he frequently drooled. He only learned to speak at the age of four and to walk until eight. Charles II is known in Spanish history as El Hexizado, the Hexed, from a popular belief to which Charles himself subscribed that his physical and mental disabilities were caused by sorcery. The king went so far as to be exorcised. He had two beautiful wives but was unable to have a child. He was probably impotent. There are a lot of ugly kings, but I think Charles wins. And boy, that's a real hatchet job there. And if he's really unable to speak, I do think it's important for a king or a queen to be able to cut promos on his own to the populace. It, it's very important in keeping them over. <laughs> in in any event here, we got Duggan, and the genius has an inset promo, and he says that uh, Duggan has a serious affliction, so maybe uh, the genius was also thinking of Charles II of Spain as well. That was the genius's thing at this point, where he didn't really have a feud. After WrestleMania five, he had kind of debuted the genius gimmick, and all he was kind of doing at this point was just cutting needling promos on the baby faces in the manner that he does here. Duggan grabs the beard and sends <laughs> Wagner to the buckle, and Jesse thought, that, oh, typical Duggan grabbing the tights. And Vince, of course, as I said, really feisty today, chides him that he's not paying attention. He grabbed the beard. You're too busy listening to those three fans chanting your name, Jesse. Now, in something that may only interest me, Duggan's trunks here are a little bit darker blue than they would ordinarily be. He's not wearing the black ones anymore, but he was not quite wearing the 
royal blue, ironically. He was wearing a much darker shade of blue. He picks up the win with the three-point stands in the clothesline. Not too much to speak of in the match here. But Bobby Heenan makes his way down to ringside, and <laughs> he just heads over to the table and takes the crown and just starts to casually walk away. But Duggan sees it and confronts Bobby on the outside. He gets Bobby in the ring, and Bobby is cowering in the corner there. Duggan grabs him and ends up whipping him into the arriving Haku, trying to reclaim his crown or steal it back. And they slug it out for a little bit, and you're kind of waiting for some sort of payoff here. And Andre the Giant ambles down to ringside. That's really the only way I could put it. And Andre, depressing. This is so depressing. It's I probably shouldn't even look for this in the Andre matches of the time period, but he does not go over the top rope when entering the ring here. That's always kind of a sad sign of his decline. He goes between the top and middle rope like a normal wrestler. It really just kind of brought him down from the kind of, he's a giant level there. And he gets in there and he manhandles Duggan. And if this sounds familiar, of course, that happened in episode 8 where he choked out Duggan before getting hit with the 2x4. And he holds Duggan and Haku with the savat kick, is what I believe they would call it, That what Haku would do. And Andre actually held on to him this time, unlike with Demolition at WrestleMania six. so Heenan's not going to try to slap him or anything like that. Now we got another guy coming down to the ring. We're just full of run-ins here. This is like a WCW show from 1999 or something. Got Big John Stud coming down to the ring. And we got that lovely thing that I is it's so magnificent when you have the brawl in the ring after the match and the timekeeper just keeps ringing the bell as if that's going to get them to stop. <laughs> it it sounds like for for those of you listening who have been to the city of Boston or live in Boston the whole ding 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 it sounds like a green line train pulling into Park Street station whenever you ding 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 kind of like what they used to do at Madison Square Garden during the introductions where the guys would go ding 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 after each particular introduction so Andre and Stud have their face-off here, and Andre lays in with three chops on Stud right away, and Stud gets uh, hit with a punch that got... Stud had already uh, knocked Haku out of the ring. Stud fires back with a punch to the gut of Andre, and Andre doubles over and falls through the ropes to the outside, so... Kind of a big bump for Andre there, although I guess that's what he was capable of at that time. Jesse thinks it was had to have been a low blow, but they're remarking that they've never seen Andre felled with one punch like that. And now, in an interesting thing, you have Big John Studd's music playing, which should sound very familiar, because it would become Hacksaw Jim Duggan's music after Studd would leave. And that would... That would be about a year and a half down the line. So it's kind of funny to see Stud and Duggan together. They would they would rework the music slightly. I think they might have sped it up a bit. And they added the ho at the beginning of it. And I was really hoping that Duggan was going to say ho during like the song as, it, as they were in the ring. And just organically say ho at the exact same time that it would be as the music was playing. Uh, 
Andre gets back up on the apron, and Stud drills him again, and Andre falls into the ring. So it's looking like, wow, Stud is really dominating Andre here, and we're setting up for a series of matches there. Like, oh, I'd love to see these two guys one-on-one, Vince says. As if, you know, Stud and Andre hadn't had a million matches with the roles reversed much earlier in the 1980s. And it's really kind of funny because this is June 3rd that this airs. And Big John Stud would actually quit on June 6th, the day of the Superstars taping in Madison, Wisconsin. And... It's just hilarious how he dominates Andre here, and then he quits three days after it airs. And the reason why is Stud was not in, I guess, the best of health and wasn't feeling up to it, but also was very tired of yet another thing that has come up on Greetings from Allentown time and again. Andre never really liked Big John Stud to begin with, whether it had been 83, 84, 85, and now in 1989, and was definitely laying in to Big John Stud in the ring, and he was a little bit tired of the abuse. And it probably makes you wonder, why the hell was Big John Stud even there in the first place? Put quite simply, it was a game of keep away by Vince McMahon, facing the new Ted Turner-headed NWA slash WCW. You notice all these guys come in in early 1989, such as Jimmy Snuka, Big John Studd, Roddy Piper makes his return. All of them were rumored to perhaps be going down to Atlanta at some point, but they all ended up here. And it was something of a game of keep away, and in Studd's case, they give him the Royal Rumble victory. And I don't know what was going on there. They were thinking that they were going to push him as a babyface, but by the time WrestleMania rolls around, he's just in a special referee mode. And in Stud's kind of failure in this run, and just the fact that it didn't work, I started to wonder, is there some sort of Bobby Heenan curse? Heenan was very masterful in when he would drop guys. He didn't bring back Ken Patera in 1987. Again, I got the kayfabe hat on. He doesn't bring Patera in, probably knowing that Patera's whole run there was going to be lousy. You had Big John Studd coming back after a similar period of time away, almost two and a half, three years. And that run ends up being a failure. He drops Andre at WrestleMania six when, you know, it was the end of the line for Andre as a player in the WWF. Heenan also dropped Paul Orndorff at a point where his arm was, you know... <laughs> noticeably shrunken from, you know, vis-a-vis his other arm. So Heenan was kind of a master, almost like Bill Belichick or Branch Rickey. Better to get rid of him a little bit too early than get rid of him a little bit too late. I think it is clear to see the battle lines have been drawn. We'll keep you up to date on this situation as it develops. Sean Mooney, after a long day in the event center, no doubt listening to Buffalo Springfield and just working in their lyrics at any point that he can find. We get a couple of promos here, nothing much. You got DiBiase with Virgil saying that he's been in for two years now and that he's heading back to his summer residence in Hyannisport, which I enjoyed that Ted DiBiase had the various things. They, they, they tried it with Tyler Breeze in NXT a couple of years ago where they said he was you know currently living in Egypt or where, wherever it was. 
course, Ted would have the regional um, or seasonal residences. In the spring, you would have Palm Beach, Florida. In the summer, you would have Hyannisport, Massachusetts. The winter residence was in the Netherlands, Antilles. And the fall one, I can't remember where he made his fall residence, but that's not really too important. And then there's a demolition promo where they just said that they're ready to take on anyone, as they did have a lot of challengers. You had the Twin Towers, and of course the Brain Busters were right around the corner. But we're going to close the show here with the Hulk Hogan promo, or at least the Superstars episode closes with the Hulk Hogan promo. And... This might be Hogan's most delusional promo ever, which covers a lot of ground. This is a man who did promos saying that Donald Trump was hanging off the side of the Trump Tower after some sort of major earthquake and would know when to let go of his materialistic possessions and this and that kind of stuff. It's really bizarre because he's saying people are coming back again and again to see No Holds Barred and he's setting box office records and it did close to $5 million that weekend for second place at the movies in a very crowded landscape number one was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade which I'm kind of ashamed to say I've never seen that movie but of course I've seen No Holds Barred ten times so that says it all about me. But let me run through the top 10 movies for that weekend in 1989 because it's it's quite a list here. At number three, you have the last of the Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor film, See No Evil, Hear No Evil. I saw that movie, I think, when I was 11 and uh, found it rather amusing. Number four, a Field of Dreams, which I find to be an overrated baseball movie. Number five is Renegades. I don't remember that one, but somebody will probably call me out on that. Number six is Roadhouse, the Terry Funk vehicle that also had Patrick Swayze in it. Number seven, Pink Cadillac. Number eight, K9, which I think is that Jim Belushi nonsense. Number nine is Pet Cemetery, And number ten is Major League, which had been in theaters for nine weeks by that point. And interestingly, number 11 is Rain Man. I always think of Rain Man as a 1988 movie, but it had been in theaters for 25 weeks. Think about that, that Rain Man was still in a bunch of theaters. It's listing here that it was in 743 theaters by that time in 1989, after nearly six months. And of course, that was a huge hit for Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise. Say Anything, one of my personal favorites, is down at number 13. And you also had, I guess, Dead Poets Society debuting in selected theaters. And there's some bizarre math here where it's in eight theaters, but somehow it did $340,000. I don't know how much they were charging for tickets, but that's neither here nor there. But the point is that No Holds Barred was not setting box office records, despite what Hogan is trying to tell you. And I'm I just going to play what Hogan has to say here, and you decide for yourself just how delusional he is. Yo, Hulkamaniacs, talk about Hulkamania running wild. Well, after No Holds Barred opened last night, I thought the Richter scale of Hulkamania's popularity was going to fall off the edge of the earth, brother. Not only did all my Hulkamaniacs jam each box office across the nation, 
I heard them talking about coming back Tuesday, Wednesday after they get done with their homework, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, too. And the way things look, this brand new movie of ours, No Holds Barred, is going to set box office records around the world. Hulk Hogan as you've never seen him before. No rules, no ring, no referee. What you gonna do when Hulkamania, the largest arms in the world, and no holds barred, runs wild on you? What the hell is Hogan's thing with earthquakes at this point? In Is he trying to foreshadow John Tenta coming in? I mean, what is going on? WrestleMania 4, WrestleMania 5, now he's talking about seismology again. Somebody must have given Hogan a book on earthquakes and how they work in like 1987 because he was just talking about it just all the time in promos and I, I I don't I don't know what he's thinking and he also says no ring like yeah maybe for Zeus in the tough man competition but I never saw Rip Thomas and by the way that's a hilarious name but anyway Rip Thomas was always in a ring every time you saw him and of course at the end you get the weird it was either the six-sided ring or the eight-sided ring, so it was either an MMA thing or a TNA thing with the final showdown with Zeus. Although I do like that arena at the end of No Holds Barred. It's it's very co very cozy type arena for like a television taping. In fact, uh, maybe TNA could have taped their TV there because uh, it's kind of a nice setup there with uh, everything. I don't know where that would have been, but that's enough No Holds Barred talk for now. And without any further ado, it is time for some YouTube comment theater. There's a lot in the comments here about the Big John Stud music issue with Hacksaw Jim Duggan. And uh, since I already mentioned that, I think I'll avoid that topic here. Mr. Perksy says, I remember in 1989, WWF brought in a lot of NWA guys. Garvin, Dusty, Wyndham, Arn, and Teller. And then you get an immediate reply from D, which that's an interesting name, just the letter D. Wasted them all, too, including Arn and Tully, regardless of their tag title reign. I almost think he brought them all in just to book them badly and discredit the NWA WCW. I don't I don't really think that's the case. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot you could get out of Ronnie Garvin in the WWF audience, so I think they got as much out of him as they could have hoped. Dusty was near the end of the line as well. Barry Windham would come in three weeks after this, debuting as the Widowmaker, but he would have to leave for reasons of uh, not entirely his own doing. He had relatives getting in trouble for counterfeiting, so he had a lot on his mind. And Arn and Tully just wanted to leave and go back to the NWA. Lee Wennerberg says, Jake Milliman Jobber, LOL. I remember when he was known as the Milkman in the AWA. Thanks, Richard, for all the great uploads. And Yeah, Jake Milliman had kind of a weird look there, and uh, he made a lot of noise in his match. He was very Iron Mike Sharp-esque. Rob West says, Beginning of the best time in WWE, 1989 to 1992. I was 9 to 12 years old. What a time. And I agree, although Jason Ryan replies back, Best time, you need to add the years 1984, 85, 86, 87, 88 as well. After 1992, the WWF went downhill until the Attitude Era. Well, I don't know. The Attitude Era doesn't really hold up so well, in at least in my eyes, right now. So, <laughs> uh, D has another comment here later on. 
The only time that I can recall Stud and Andre had any real physical altercation during Stud's second run. Andre put Stud over heavily, too, bumping all over the place and selling the strikes. Yeah, they did have matches on house shows, and of course they did have a confrontation at WrestleMania Five where Stud was the referee, but there was not a whole lot of physicality other than, you know, Andre kind of bumping him in the corner and then going into the choke there, so... Captain Calculus says, needless to say, no holds bars. It says no holds bars, but anyway. No holds bars bombed critically and at the box office, playing at very few theaters almost exclusively in major centers in the South, making a huge loss for the company. WWF would have cold feet about extending the, quote, WWF universe into movies. I don't think it was limited to the south that really doesn't make any sense i mean it was in the theaters up where i was i don't know why i went to stoneham to see the movie because there was a movie theater in woburn that was much closer to the house by the way the theater in stoneham uh, that that's long gone that's been gone for about a quarter century and is now i believe a liquor store and actually a very good liquor store so <laughs> Uh, Rob West, again, says that Dusty promo was a disaster, and I disagree. It's just good fun. Uh, You know, there was a time in my life as a wrestling fan that I would be horribly offended by Dusty Rhodes having to do this stuff, but as I've aged, I've, I've grown to just really have an appreciation for some of the comedic elements of professional wrestling. And that'll do it for this week's show. Now, for next week's show... I'm long overdue for another look at WCW and maybe seeing guys like Ronnie Garvin, Tully and Arn, Dusty maybe put me in the mood to go back down to Atlanta. So I'll be taking a look at WCW Worldwide Wrestling. As I had mentioned a few weeks ago, that was my show that I would follow wrestling with when I had no access to cable in 97 and 98. Of course, at this time in 1998, this would be the June 6, 98 edition. So I was home from college, so I was able to watch Nitro and, God help me, even Thunder. And this is a, a kind of a funny WCW show, as I've kind of given it a once-over, as there are a lot of moments that make you go, huh? And there are kind of signals that maybe things weren't so planned out in WCW. I know, shocking. But on the show, uh, I'm going to have a bit of a reckoning as there is a Chris Benoit match there. So I'm going to be forced to address that elephant in the room. Also, we have Fit Finley, who was the television champion at the time. And Goldberg, who was the United States champion and building his way up and do they know how many wins in a row that he's had i don't know will tony change his mind mid-match tune in to find out also kendall windham in action doing his steve austin impersonator gimmick disorderly conduct taking on the villanos i don't know one two three four or five uh, who knows and the feature bout on worldwide a main event in any reader in the country jess we got Hacksaw Jim Duggan, back again. Maybe he's the patron saint of this show, taking on Reese of the flock. And Tony, when Reese comes out, Tony, it's it's amazing. It's so WCW what Tony has to do to try to explain things that don't make sense on, on the screen. So 
be nice to get back into a little bit of world championship wrestling next week so tune in next time for another exciting episode of greetings from allentown Look at that little glutton.